Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? Hey, it's time once more for the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, and general awesomeness of some very cool plant people to figure out why they do what they do and what keeps them coming back for more. I'm Vikram Baligia, your host and your humble guide in this journey through the plant sciences. And as always, y'all, I'm so excited to be with you today. Hey, it's time for another Q&A episode. I know my schedule's been a little weird recently, and I apologize that I haven't gotten as much content out as I normally do. It's just been, life's been kind of crazy, and that happens sometimes. And uh, I think I mentioned in the last episode that I'm probably going to take the month of July off and just rerun some of my favorite episodes from the back catalog. So if you're a new listener to Planthropology, I, you know, I know how it is. There's 107 or so episodes now, and it's it's hard to go back and listen from the beginning. So you'll get to hear if you're following along some of the old stuff that I really love, maybe with some new commentary and stuff like that. I'll also be using the month of July to record a whole bunch of new stuff. So probably around the time the semester starts in August, I'll be back with all new episodes. But this week, I actually should have two of them coming at you, at least this one. We'll see. There may be another one, but at least this one today. So I've got a bunch of questions from a bunch of cool people. And uh, yeah, let's do it. Okay, so this may be a fairly short one, or I may go back and pull some additional questions in addition to what I have on my list. And uh, I think it'll be fun. It'll be fun. So as always, uh, these are questions that have been submitted to me on social media, via email, um, really however I could get them. So uh, I'm excited to to talk about a few of these things. And um, some of this I'll go into depth on, and some of it I may not. We'll see. It's going to be a fun episode. As you know, this just kind of comes as it comes, and uh, you get what you get. And most of the time, it turns out pretty well. At least I think it does. First question today comes from Chris Bratton, who is uh, another proud Podfix Network member. And the question is, what's a fruit you've always wanted to eat but never had the chance? I had to think about this for a while because, honestly, I have tried a lot of different fruits. And obviously, there's more out there that I haven't tried for sure. But I was really kind of trying to think through my options of what is a fruit that I've never tried, really want to. And I've, I've got two answers for this. And one of them is pretty exotic. And one of them is considerably less so. So the first one that I think I would really like to try is the miracle fruit, the miracle fruit. So the miracle fruit is called that because it changes your taste buds. And um, I actually talked about this with uh, one of my guests, Melissa Petrozello. You should go back and listen to that episode. It was a really good one. Melissa, by the way, is the plant natural sciences editor for the Encyclopedia Britannica. How cool is that? That still is the, the coolest thing ever. But I've never tried it. And, you know, you can order them in different ways. You can get them in pill form where they um, extract these compounds in this fruit. And I'll tell you what it does in just a second. Or you can eat them fresh or frozen or dried or whatever. But this miracle fruit changes your taste buds. So things that would normally taste sour 
will taste sweet or things that would normally be kind of bitter or, uh, you know, have weird flavors will taste sweet, which is kind of cool. Now, this is an interesting thought for me, and, and I'm not sure why exactly it would do this from like a biological standpoint. And um, Melissa probably knows more about this than I do, but it's really fascinating. And it was probably something that someone discovered by mistake. I think I've mentioned before how much I think about the first person to dr- to try things, like try a new fruit or whatever. And I was like, oh, Bill ate that and Bill's dead now. Oh, no, poor Bill. But this one, this guy eats it. He's like, well, this is weird. It doesn't really taste so much. I don't, I don't know that the fruit itself is especially, you know, good or anything to write home about. I think it's just, a, you know, a fruit. But then maybe he went and ate a lemon or something else, and it changes the way that your taste buds react to flavors. Now, it's an interesting thought because our taste is a signal to us about the one ripeness of a fruit or the safety of a fruit. Now, this is not true across the board. So don't take this advice and just go start popping things in your mouth. A good, good rule of thumb is if you don't know what it is, don't eat it. Don't eat it. There's a lot of dangerous stuff out there. But a lot of times when things taste sour or bitter or something like that, it's supposed to tell us that that fruit may not be ripe. The sugars have not had a time to build up and concentrate in the fruit, so it's not totally ripe. Or that it's poisonous. A lot of poisons, especially acidic type poisons, a lot of alkaloids are either um, uh, really sour or they're bitter. So it it is supposed to tell us something. So when you get something really sour in your mouth or something really bitter in your mouth, typically you spit it out because you don't want to eat that. And there's a chance that that thing is poisonous. So it's you know evolutionarily something that was supposed to keep us alive, but I would really like to try a miracle fruit and then try to like eat a lemon slice or something. I think it's really cool. The other one that is a little less exotic, but that I've never been able to try is the American pawpaw, the Asimia triloba. So this is a deciduous tree uh, that is native to the eastern United States, Canada. It produces these big, like yellowish, greenish fruit um, that kind of have like this custardy appearance. And uh, apparently they're very good. People tend to really like pawpaws. And I see on Twitter a lot, oh, it's pawpaw season. And I'm like, oh, nothing grows here where I live. That's not true. But that's one I have also always wanted to try. And maybe one day I shall. So if you have, I wonder, I, they wouldn't really do very well here where I am. We tend to have, um, you know, fairly basic high pH soils. Uh, these things are native to like the southeastern US. So that a lot of times will mean that they like an acidic soil and that is not what happens. But I'm going to try to get some of these and eat them. But I've, ha- I've had the chance to eat a lot of different fruits, which kind of leads me to the second question on the Q&A, which is from both Amy Black Whittle and Chris Braddon. He tagged this on there with his front one. What is a fruit you've had that you will never eat Again, this was also a hard question for me because, again, I like most fruits. I really enjoy them, and I've tried a whole bunch of different ones, and there's very few that I don't like. Two that come to mind, though, that I'm not going to say I would never try them again. Like, I'll I'll try things a couple of times, and, you know, sometimes I develop a taste for them, or I forget that I liked them, or I forget, you know, I'll realize that I didn't dislike them. One and again, this is a, a fairly common fruit, uh, 
But what I don't, I don't like papayas. I have never liked papayas. And I, I don't know what it is about them. Um, you would think that it, it's, you know, something that, I, I don't know if it's like too much like a squash to me. It's not a squash at all. But it's like, I don't know. I have never liked papayas. I, if I'm going to eat a fruit that's like tropical like that, I'm going for a mango 100% of the time. So papayas don't do it for me. Um, the other one that I don't really like is some persimmons. So persimmons are native to North America, and there's several kinds of them. These are in the Diaspirus genus, and there are what's known as astringent and non-astringent papayas. And some people like both of them. Some people like the astringent ones, but they tend to be a little bit bitter. Um, they have some compounds in them that'll make your tongue kind of tingly, and they tend to have like a really edgy sort of flavor to them. And again, some people really like them, um, but uh, it is not for me. And I this is one I've tried a few times. Can't do it. But the non astringent, but the non astringent persimmons are awesome. They have a really sweet flavor. Um, they're sort of like buttery and tech and, and custardy and texture and in flavor. They're, they're really good. So I don't mind those at all, but I am not a fan of the astringent ones. So yeah, those are good questions. So let's see. What else do we have here? This is a big question. Tyler Herman, Archduke Tyler on Twitter, uh, throws a lot of really good questions at me all the time. And in fact, he sent me one on Twitter like an hour ago and pretty much said, well, I don't know when the next time you're going to record a Q&A episode, Tyler, it's right now, it's happening right now, is going to be. But he asked a question that I'm going to probably do in the second half of this episode. But the question he sent last time, which is a really good question, is has agriculture had effects on plant ecology outside of managed farms lands? Y'all, how much time you got? Yes, so much yes. In incredibly yes. It agriculture has had impacts on every ecosystem on the planet, directly or indirectly. Now, when I say impacts, I don't always necessarily mean that they're super negative, but there have been things that have happened um, from agricultural production that have absolutely 100% had impacts on other ecosystems. So we could go through a long list, and this has never been an anti-agriculture podcast, but I think it is important to remember that as we produce food and as we do the things that we do as humans, we have to be careful about the way that we interact with the natural world, with the ecosystems around us, or we're not going to have any left at some point. So let me just pick a couple of these uh, to, to go through. Um, one is let's talk about the escapes of bred and developed plants. So this is not super common. A lot of times when we, I'm using we pretty liberally here, when scientists develop these new lines of plants, especially if they're genetically modified, especially in transgenics, they are putting safeguards in place to try to keep these from genetics from getting out. And there's planting rules. Don't plant this within, you know, 600 feet of another variety or X, Y, and Z. You can't save seed. You can't do it, et cetera, et cetera, right? There are things that you have to do with certain types of seed and certain types of agricultural plants that, that keep some of those traits and some of those things from getting out. But 
in some plants, we start to get escapes of some of these technologies. So I think a good example is corn and Johnson grass. Okay, so so corn from the standpoint of genetic modification is one of the most heavily genetically modified plants. Now there's other ones and and this is one that is in our you know food systems and our fuel systems and all of that. Corn is susceptible to a lot of things from rust diseases, rust fungi to or fungi. You know, I don't say fungus. I say fungus. So I think I'm going to have to start saying fungi instead of Fungi, but fungi is more fun to say. Anyway, that's completely irrelevant. So corn is susceptible to rust. It's susceptible to a lot of foliar diseases. There's a lot of insects that attack it. So as genetic modification was becoming more popular and all these breeding efforts were happening, corn was a natural one that we found out that we, again, we is very generous. Um, scientists found out they could stack a lot of these traits into. It wasn't hard to take these genes and put them into the corn genome. So things like resistance to certain um, pesticides and herbicides, so you could spray around them to make sure that, you know, the fields stay pretty clean. Uh, resistance to things like, um, a corn earworm, resistance to rusts, and all of these different traits were stacked in there. And in theory, the male pollen grains from, um, a lot of these corn plants should be sterile so they can't outcross with, um, other plants or they're only self-fertile and things like that. So there, there are safeguards put in place to keep from from escaping. Well, that doesn't always work. And sometimes these uh, controlled measures fail. So we're starting to see in some places Johnson grass, which is a pretty uh, common agricultural weed. It, it grows in rights of way. It's a fast growing grass that some of these traits are ending up in. So we're seeing some Johnson grass in different places that is very herbicide resistant and uh, resistant to different things. So that that is possibly an ecological consequence of some of our agricultural production systems. Grasses like corn and Johnson grass tend to be fairly promiscuous. And what I mean by that is that the, they don't, they don't have to be super close related to cross out with another grass. You get a lot of, um, interspecific and even in some cases intergeneric crossing in grasses. So that, that is one consequence that has come up. And it's not common. It's only in a few places, but it has been seen and it has happened. So that's something we have to be careful about. Uh, another one I think we'll talk about is probably runoff from agriculture. So whether that is pesticide runoff or fertilizer runoff, um, you know, pesticides are useful. They are useful tools, but they're most useful when used correctly. We want to make sure we are using our pesticides correctly and safely. So we want to make sure that, you know, again, when we apply them, we apply them specifically where they're going to go. And we want to make sure that they're only interacting with the plant or insect we're trying to get rid of, trying to kill, right? Right. Okay. So in some cases, you can get drift damage that, you know, uh, a pesticide or an herbicide will end up contacting something that was an off target, um, something like that. That can be a problem. It can end up in groundwater in different places. Also, fertilizers, they can run downstream if they're over-applied or inappropriately applied. They can end up in waterways. They can run off. And then we'll see things like algal blooms in the Gulf of Mexico, where a lot of these, you know, 
pesticides and fertilizers end up in waterways, end up in the Gulf. We get these big algal blooms sometimes because they really like phosphorus and they really like nitrogen. And then when the populations blow up, sometimes we see problems with fish die off and, and things like that. It can cause some ecological harm. So, yes, absolutely. There are plenty of cases of agricultural systems um, having unintended consequences on the ecosystem at large. However, however, what I want you to hear me to say is that 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 is not supposed to be sort of a knock on agriculture in general because we have to have agriculture, y'all. We have to have food to eat. And uh, we have to have large-scale production of food. And I know there's at least one of you out there thinking, well, I'll just grow my own food in my backyard. And that's nice. And I'm glad that you can. But that is not a possibility for most people. So we have to have a sort of robust food system. And in order to do that, we have to have high output agriculture. So over time and in, the, in recent years, we've gotten a lot better at making sure that things stay put and go where they're supposed to go. New products, new chemicals, new things that come out are much safer than they were even 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. So we're making lots of progress. There are still un unintended consequences, but they're mitigated and they're less than they used to be. So that was a good first three questions. Uh, we'll take a break. Let's take a break. I'm going to talk about some stuff. And then when we come back, we'll do, oh, I don't know, at least three more. Well, hey there. Welcome to the mid-roll. I'm so glad you've made it this far. And I hope you've gotten some of your questions answered. If not, send them my way. Connect on social media. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Search for Planthropology, which is anthropology with a PL slapped right on the front. Look for the bristlecone pine. And that'll be me. You can also join the Planthropology's Cool Plant People Facebook group on Facebook. It's lots of fun. You can ask questions there. You can send in uh, comments and thoughts and questions and all of that. Also, if you want to email me your questions for next month's Q&A episode, you can email me at planthropologypod at gmail.com. It's a great way to support the show. Give me more content to talk about. And I just like to hear from you. If you do follow on social media, you should drop by and say hello to me. That would make me happy. Also, if you want to support the show, there's a lot of ways you can do that. You can leave a rating and review on your favorite rating and review machine. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. I wear a size five-star review, but I also want you to be honest. But maybe instead of just dropping a one-star review, if you don't like talking about agriculture or whatever, uh, maybe send me an email with some thoughts and comments first. But be honest, I want to hear your thoughts. I would really appreciate that for sure. You can also snag some Planthropology merch if you go to planthropologypod.com and click on merch. It'll take you to the Redbubble store and you can find hats and t-shirts and stickers and all kinds of things with some great designs. More designs will be added over the summer. If you'd also like to directly financially support the show, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash planthropology. And for the price of the coffee, you can buy me a coffee for the price of one coffee. So uh, I would really appreciate that. But you know what? There is no obligation to do so. I'm going to keep making it and hopefully you're going to keep listening regardless. Thank you so much to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for supporting and sponsoring and letting me do the show. It means the world and I love doing it and I really, 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 really appreciate it. 
Also, I am a part of the Podfix Network. So go check out podfixnetwork.com for all the great shows that are a part of the Podfix Network from um, science to comedy to sports and movies and everything in between. You can find something you'll like there. And for the month of June and the first part of July in the year of our Lord, 2022, uh, the whole Podfix Network is sponsored by Sundays for Dogs. Sundays for Dogs, your dog deserves tasty, healthy, real food, not kibble. Sundays is real food for real dogs, not the fake ones, although I guess you could feed it to a fake dog. Formulated by a vet with only the highest quality fresh meat, veggies, fruit, and superfoods, air dried to perfection. Made in the USA at a USDA human food facility. Now, my dog is getting older. She is, and I hate to think about that, but she is, she's 10 years old, and she makes some real weird smells these days, like real weird. It'll be like in the middle of the night, and she'll make a smell out of one end or the other, and then get up and walk away like nothing happened, and we're just left to suffer. So I'm going to try some Sundays for dogs for my dog to see if I can change the overall flavor of her bodily aroma. I think I can because these are all natural, easy to serve and easy to digest ingredients for dogs. It's less than $2 a day. It's perfect for picky eaters. It's customized to their dog, their size, breed and activity level. It is a great product for your very best friend. If you go to sundaysfordogs.com, you can take a quick quiz to find the right plan for your pup. The best part, if you Use the promo code PODFIX, P-O-D-F-I-X. You get 35% off your first order. That is 35% off your first order at Sundays for Dogs with code PODFIX. What else? Is there other things? There's probably other things. You'll probably right after this hear the trailer for a great podcast on the Buzzsprout platform that you should definitely put in your ear holes. Aside from that, let's get back to answering your questions. Okay, more questions, more questions. All right, so Ari at Ari underscore CAC asks on Twitter. She's also a friend on the TikTok machine as well. What is the most egregious plant hack I've ever seen? Oh, good Lord. There are so many, so many good choices. I think the most alarming one and the grossest one I've seen is people that put like milk, like just like put spoiled milk in your house plants. I can't, I can't imagine the smell. Can you imagine the smell? It's horrifying. The stuff of nightmares, absolute nightmare fuel. So don't put milk in your plants. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, I'm actually doing a little experiment. And if you'd like to follow along, hit me up on TikTok at the plant prof. And I'm trying some of these plant hacks on some different plants in the growth chamber and then in the greenhouse just to see if any of them actually work. So if you're interested in that, head over to at the plant prof on TikTok and uh, follow me there. There'll be lots of updates. But milk, milk, y'all, don't, don't put spoiled milk in your plants. You don't want spoiled milk sitting on the counter open, do you? No. No, you don't. So don't pour it in your house plants. I think one of the, some of the sillier one. Oh, I saw a good one. There was a silly 
weird one um, that I saw the other day. And I don't remember exactly what it looked like or or how it went. I think they took a pineapple and cut the top off and put like a watermelon seed inside. And then when they cut it again, I was like, oh, this pineapple's full of watermelon. When clearly they just hollowed the pineapple out and filled it up with watermelon, right? And then someone was like, factor cap, you know, is this real? And they did the same thing. They're like, it's real. No, it's not. It's stupid. So that one was dumb. And then there was also one where they like put a banana and a kiwi together. And then they got like a kiwi full of banana or a banana full of kiwi. It's nonsense. A lot of these things are nonsense. There's some plant quote unquote hacks out there that are actually okay. I've seen some people make like a a sort of suspension of cornstarch and water. And then uh, put like carrot seeds or something in there. It provides a little moisture. It helps you plant them and space them and they don't blow away. It's kind of clever. There's some things that work. But most of the plant hacks you see on social media, whether it be TikTok or Twitter or wherever else, are total nonsense. Garbage. Don't, don't, don't follow those. Don't use those. Inzy Noel Nelson. Uh, let's see. At Inzy Noel asks are there any invasives or non-natives that are your guilty pleasure goodness yes yes there's a lot of them um i I, i've talked about this before but i'm not really a nativist i i am not stuck on just using native plants in an area and i know that's controversial depending on who's listening to this and what circles you're in but a lot of times there are plants that are perfectly well adapted to an area may not be native to an area, but they may na- be native to an area that's very similar, right? And there are things that are going to do well in a landscape, do well in an area without escaping containment, without causing harm to pollinators. They're great pollinator plants, and they do fine, right? So let's not just stick to native plants. Let's think about native and well-adapted plants. I think that is a better option. Also, as we have talked about before, what is a native plant? right? What's a native plant? Normally, it's considered to be a plant, and we've talked about this before, like I said, that was here when European colonizers showed up, right? Like, oh, this plant was here. It must have always been here. It is part of this pristine landscape when, again, that is sort of racist and terrible because uh, there were vast civilizations of indigenous peoples uh, from the First Nations here in North America before Europeans ever figured out how to get lost enough to end up here. And uh, they had profound impacts on the landscape. Now they manage them probably a lot better than a lot of other folks have. They uh, relied heavily on the native ecology. So they did it in such a way as to preserve it. The word native plant is a little bit arbitrary, right? So let's go native and well adapted. But there are so many like invasive non-native plants that aren't from Lubbock um, that I like having. Like how about every tree? Every tree. This is a grassland. We are a short to medium grass prairie. And so if you want trees, not here. This ain't it. So I like trees. So there are a lot of non-native trees that, like all of them, that I enjoy having. And there's some that can be invasive. Looking at you, Bradford pear, even though they're not so bad here. Uh, And there's some that don't really do well like magnolias. But you know what? An oak tree is really perfectly happy in Lubbock, America. So are elm trees. So are a lot of other things. I like those quite a bit. One that I'm not supposed to like. And I know that depending on where you're listening to this from, uh, you're probably going to get upset when I say this. Some of you on the West Coast, for sure. Um, I love Spanish broom. 
I I love Spanish broom. Okay, so Spanish broom, if you don't know, is this large sort of woody shrub that has really cylindrical stems, uh, tiny little leaves on it, these beautiful bright yellow flowers in the spring. Uh, it is a um, fabaceae, so it's a legume or leguminose, depending on what era you come from in taxonomy. And the flowers are bilabiate. They're really pretty. They're really pretty flowers. And the smell is incredible. Incredible. It's almost too strong after a while, but we have one in the garden at Texas Tech. And in the spring, when it blooms on a humid day, you can smell it from like 200 feet away, 400. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It is unbelievably invasive on the West Coast and in Southern Canada, Southwestern Canada. Uh, but here, they're pretty well behaved. It's dry enough. Uh, our, our winters are cold enough to kill off some of the seedlings. So they, they pretty much stay put here. I love them. Uh, they're fairly well adapted here, but I know in a lot of places in the U.S. they are far less well behaved. So I'm going to say Spanish broom. I have other options. Kudzu? No, that's not true. I don't don't nobody quote me on that. Uh, I don't I don't love kudzu, but you know there's there's lots of plants. Well, one that I don't like, one that I really don't like actually. That's that is in the garden at Texas Tech that is the gift that keeps giving is uh, Enothera speciosa, the pink evening primrose. Um, that one, once it's there, likes to hang out forever, forever and ever. Amen. So uh, that's one that I would not necessarily want in my landscape. The last question kind of goes with that one. It's from Offshore Oddities af at offshore oddity on twitter is there any plant that you despise for me it's hostas uh yeah so i mentioned the pink evening primrose onothera or enothera or enothera depending on how you want to pronounce it speciosa um this is not going to be popular i don't like roses i've never liked roses there's just something about roses like they're pretty some of them smell good they're fine I just, they're overused. They don't do as well. They're susceptible to literally everything. I just, I, we can do better than roses, y'all. And they're fine. You know, if you want to plant roses, go ahead. I, I am, I am not a fan. Ooh, Bradford pears. I despise Bradford pears. They're the absolute worst. They should all go away. All of them. Every one of them. Let's cut them all down and let's make a big bonfire somewhere and make them all go away. Uh, normally I just do six, six questions, but Tyler, again, uh, Tyler Herman, Archduke Tyler, sent in a really interesting one just a couple of hours ago. And I want to go ahead and answer it because I do think it's fascinating. So he says, not sure when you're recording the next Q&A episode. Again, right now. But one thing I'd love to know and understand better is how we know that Pando is a single organism instead of a bunch of clones or something. Okay, this is such an interesting question. So Pando, if you don't know, is Latin for I spread. And it is the largest single organism, or it's largely considered to be the largest single organism on the planet. It is in Utah, and it's a stand of quaking aspen. Covers some 106 square miles. It's, depending on how you kind of date things, estimated to be between anywhere from 40,000 to 80,000 years old, weigh hundreds of thousands of tons. It's massive. So aspen trees spread from the root. Uh, 
right? When a new aspen tree pops up, there is a very small chance it came from seed and a very, very large chance it came from a root. They tend to form these, we would call them in Texas on live oaks, uh, a mott of live oaks, but we call them stands in aspens. So they grow above a certain level, like they grow, um, and I don't remember exactly what the elevation is, but they only grow above a certain elevation. They like dry climates. They like cool, cold winters, uh, beautiful trees. You can tell they're aspen trees, because of the way that they are. They're very neat. But people say that Pando is one organism because of how this tree spreads. So, Tyler, you're technically right. They are all clones of one another. But the root system is interconnected. So each individual tree is connected through this incredibly massive underground root network to every other tree. Most directly connected to the tree next to it, but that one's connected to the tree next to that. And how do we define where one organism stops and the next starts, right? They're all genetically the same. They're all linked through the roots. And if you go back and you, you, you know, roll back in time and we travel back 80,000 years, there was a mother tree. There was, there was one, right? Or two or a small group of them that, that started in this place in Utah and then they fanned out from there. And, and probably there's an, that one tree is clearly probably not still there anymore. But as that hole opened, it spread back into that space. And so it's a continuous 106 square miles. Um, Am I saying that right? I may not be saying that right. I'm going to Google this as I am talking. I don't can't remember if it's 106 square acres or 106 square miles. Those things are very different. But um, it 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 is a continuous organism, and that's really interesting to think about. So I would say some of the 106 acres, not 106 square miles. I'm going to go ahead and fact check myself there as we go. 106 acres. That's very different, y'all. That in incredibly innumerable. So uh, 106 acres is somewhere in the um, neighborhood of, oh, what's he, 43, 620 times 106, somewhere in the middle, in the range of four and a half to five million square feet. Uh, I don't, I can't do that math for miles. It's a big number. So, um, yes, no, it's not 106 square miles. So, it depends a little bit if we want to think about this as one organism or multiple on how we define what makes one organism one organism. In my estimation, since they're all linked through the roots and since they're all genetically the same, they're the same plant. It's one big plant with lots of shoots that are coming up. Uh, just like you would think of one plant of a strawberry or one plant of grass or, or Bermuda grass or whatever has multiple shoots sort of off of one parent plant. This is sort of the same thing. They're just all connected through this root network. So that's really an interesting um, sort of thing to think about, a thought experiment. So I say personally that it's one big organism, but there's probably people out there that would argue with me. So let's see. That's about it. Yep, that's about it. I thought that was a good one. I thought those were some really good questions. So I, I would love for you to send me more questions. I would love for you to send them my way so that I can have more to answer in July. I did say that I'll be doing probably old episodes and rerunning episodes, but I think I still will do a July Q&A at the end of the month because they're they're fun. I enjoy these. And then we'll get back to regular content in August. I'm hopefully interviewing a bunch of really cool people, um, including several of my colleagues from the 
Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science, uh, some friends I have made on TikTok and Twitter in different places. So I can't wait for you to hear what I have coming up. But send me your questions. Follow Planthropology all the places. Um, go follow the Podfix Network. Do all the things. Thanks again to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science. And most of all, thanks to you, the listener. Uh, I, I'm recording this on, let's see, June 28th, 2022. And, and from the Supreme Court in Washington doing all kinds of stuff right now to, to everything else. There's still COVID. There's still all kinds of things out there. Um, the news cycle is crazy and dark. And I say at the end of every episode, keep being kind to one another. And if you haven't been kind to one another, maybe give it a shot. That has never been more important than it is now. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Um, be just a, a, a bright spot in someone's life. I think it's so important. And uh, you know that I love you folks. Uh, you know that no matter what I'm rooting for you, that I want the best for you. And I hope that you're doing well. So send me your questions. I'd love to try to answer them. Be safe, be kind, um, be smart, and be well. Uh, and we'll talk real soon. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.